1971, Ted Kaczynski left civilization to live alone in the Montana wilderness. Disenfranchised with the focus on science and technology in society, he wanted to find a place where he could live simply, be self-sufficient, and rely solely on nature and not on machines. His cabin was modest. It was 120 square feet. It had no electricity and no running water. Kaczynski taught himself to live off of the land. He farmed, foraged, trapped, and hunted his food. His only contact with others occurred when he rode an old bicycle to the library where he would read classic works. Although initially peaceful, nearby construction began to encroach on Kaczynski and further contributed to his view of technology as evil. He began sabotaging the construction sites and further immersed himself in the written works of philosophers with his same worldview. By 1978, Kaczynski had lost all hope that society would see the problems with science. He began believing violence was the only way to spread his message and correct the problem. He began building pipe bombs, which he either personally delivered or sent through the mail. Although the bombs were made from commonly found items, Kaczynski altered them so that they were untraceable. The first bomb was delivered to Northwestern University engineering professor Buckley Christ. Christ found the package in the parking lot with his own address listed as the return address. He contacted campus security and a security guard opened the package detonating the bomb which injured him but was not fatal. One year later in 1979 one bomb injured John Harris, a graduate student at Northwestern University. On November 15, 1979, a bomb malfunctioned in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444, releasing smoke and injuring 12 people. Kaczynski would kill his first victim on December 11, 1985, when Hugh Scrutton, who owned a computer store in Sacramento, California, was killed by a bomb placed in the parking lot. In 1994, Thomas J. Moser, a public relations executive, was killed after Kaczynski sent a bomb to his New Jersey home. Kaczynski later told the New York Times he killed Moser because his company had helped ExxonMobil improve their image after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. In 1995, Gilbert Brent Murray, president of the California Forestry Association, a timber industry lobbying group, was murdered by one of Kaczynski's mail bombs. From 1979 to 1995, Kaczynski also seriously injured the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, Vanderbilt University Secretary Janet Smith, engineering professor Diogenes Angelikos, graduate student John Hauser, psychology professor James McConnell, research assistant Nicholas Sweeno, computer store owner Gary Wright, geneticist Charles Epstein, and computer science professor David Galertner. Kaczynski set bombs to Illinois, Utah, Tennessee, California, Washington, Connecticut, and New Jersey. Early on, he targeted universities and airlines. Authorities were able to link the bombings, although they did not have a suspect. As a result, the FBI gave the bomber the moniker Unibomb, with the UN standing for University, the A for Airlines, and the bomb for his method of attack. Kaczynski did leave clues with his bombs, however. They were designed to mislead law enforcement, and by 1995, the FBI still had not made an arrest in the case. The same year, Kaczynski mailed several news outlets copies of his 35,000-word manifesto titled Industrial Society and Its Future, along with a demand that the document be printed in its entirety. In return, he promised he would stop the bombings. The manifesto was published in both the New York Times and the Washington Post on September 19, 1995. The general theme of the document was that technology was destroying civilization. Technology no longer served mankind, but mankind served technology, and that technology could not be destroyed unless the society that upheld the advancement of technology was also destroyed. 
David Kaczynski, Ted Kaczynski's younger brother, had been following the case at the urging of his wife, who suspected Ted was the Unabomber. When he read the manifesto, he identified some of the writing idiosyncrasies his brother used in the document. Once it was clear to David his brother was the Unabomber, he contacted an attorney to organize the evidence and make contact with the FBI. Kaczynski was arrested on April 3, 1996, at his remote Montana cabin. He was charged federally with 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, as well as 3 counts of murder. His public defenders wanted to pursue an insanity defense, but Kaczynski would not allow it, as he did not want to be perceived as mentally ill, unless there was a guarantee this would result in his release. He knew this was highly unlikely. Kaczynski attempted suicide on January 9, 1998. This, as well as his request to represent himself at trial, led him to be evaluated for competency to stand trial. While some of the mental health professionals who evaluated him diagnosed him with schizophrenia, others believed he had a personality disorder and not a mental illness. He was found competent to stand trial on January 21, 1998. Prosecutors sought the death penalty, but offered Kaczynski a plea agreement where he would avoid execution by pleading guilty to all charges. He accepted the plea agreement and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Kaczynski later appealed the conviction alleging the court violated his constitutional rights by not allowing him to represent himself. The conviction was upheld by the 9th District Court of Appeals. He is currently serving four consecutive life sentences plus 30 years at the Administrative Maximum Security Prison in Florence, Colorado. This episode is about the Unabomber, Part 2. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast examining the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, thank you all for joining us for the second part of our two episode series on the Unabomber. There was just so much information that David and I didn't feel like we could fit it all into one episode. So, last time we talked about the early years of Ted Kaczynski and how some of those early experiences and some of his own kind of internal characteristics may have helped to shape the person that he became later on. And obviously this episode, we're talking more in depth about his crimes and uh, his manifesto and the philosophy that was behind that, as well as the criminal trial and some of the kind of intricacies of that. Yeah, you know, looking into Kaczynski's manifesto was enlightening. That's what I spent this last couple of weeks really doing, trying to get a, a more of a feel for his general philosophy. 
So if you get into his manifesto, it certainly offers a glimpse into his thinking around the time he was making bombs and living in the forest alone. I will first say that his philosophical work is certainly not the work of someone who is psychotic or mentally ill as per the strict definitions outlined in the law or psychological diagnosis, but you'll get to that. right? Yes, more on that in a moment. More on that, definitely, because that's what you do. Right. So in other words, in my humble opinion, this manifesto could not have been written by somebody who was wrestling with a diagnosable mental health disorder that would have been going untreated at the time. That's just my semi-informed opinion on the matter. Okay. Um, Most people know the basic thrust of Kaczynski's work, which is the sort of uh, Terminator, Matrixy, Wall-E, all these movies sort of, you know, which are pop references. And their take on how technology has changed us as human beings, with Terminator and the Matrix uh, being extreme versions of this, while the movie WALL-E, a much more whimsical take on how technology can threaten to drive us further apart as human beings, even though it may have been originally designed to bring us closer. So that's the overarching point that Kaczynski is making in his manifesto, but it's more nuanced than that. And this is where he shows his sophistication as an intellectual, I think, because he makes some very powerful points in his writing. Points that are way too organized for someone who may be psychotic. But again, that's just my own humble opinion, and that's really for you to examine, Dr. McConnell. Yeah, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a few moments when we talk about um, his his trial and the mental health aspects of that. Um, but I think that that's, that's a good observation, but it's not 100% of the time accurate. All right, so let's take a condensed look at how Kaczynski structures his ideas in his manifesto. As I was reading his work, it triggered references to many of the other philosophers, theorists, and even pop culture references that I've studied in the past. For instance, Kaczynski's sensibilities as to how to approach Uh, what he calls the system, quote-unquote, is a lot like that of Tyler Durden's philosophical bent in the movie Fight Club, if anybody remembers his character, the the Tyler Durden character from that movie. Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. There is a sense that Kaczynski is looking for a technological regression of sorts, as he believes that as technology progresses, it will only serve to continue to limit our personal and political freedoms as citizens. So right from the start, he takes aim at those he refers to as, quote, leftists and uses a very generalized conception of what this means. So just a quick note, to be fair, Kaczynski recognizes that his manifesto, while poignant, is not really a true work of scholarship. At many points, he makes wildly unsubstantiated claims. He makes very huge generalizations that are based on some pretty outdated stereotypes, I would say. He also references a lot of ideas that are not original or his own, but doesn't bother really to trace the genesis of these ideas very well. So did was he the one that said in there, because I didn't read the whole thing, full disclosure, but what, did he actually say like, hey, this is not a work of scholarship, this is just my opinion? Or He does at the very end. He, he makes a disclaimer, and I'll, I'll get to that, this okay. sort of disclaimer that he puts on it. But he doesn't, you know, in a true work of scholarship, you're expected to be able to trace and reference your ideas. Right, right. You know? And mm-hmm. he he doesn't really do that. Okay, I'll put it to you that way. You can tell that he's well-read, but he doesn't take a whole lot of time referencing where he gets a lot of these ideas. Okay. And I'll give you some examples as we move along. So, he again, he does uh, offer a disclaimer at the end of the manifesto. 
where he admits that his manifesto is cursory and humorously admits that some of his points may be, quote, flatly false. Huh, interesting. Yeah, so there's that. Okay. So it's almost like he's saying, you know, don't take this too seriously, hmm. which is kind of funny to me anyway. Not funny in a ha-ha sense, because considering he was mailing bombs to people, but you right, know like, what I mean. Right, like, he was obviously taking it very seriously. He was obviously taking it very hmm. seriously. Okay, interesting. So, if you remember the ideas from the last episode those of modernism versus postmodernism. We have Kaczynski start out by attacking, quote, leftist types. But what he really means to say, if I may, are postmodern types. Again, this is the kind of thinking that is responsible for a lot of social progression, such as feminism, gay rights, multiculturalism, critical theory, you know, political correctness, affirmative action, stuff like that. This, These are all driven by postmodern thought. This is the kind of thinking that is predominant on college campuses where Kaczynski makes his point in his manifesto that this thinking is driven by intellectuals such as college professors. In the spiral dynamics Ken Wilber model, which I make reference to quite a bit, um, this would be called green thinking. That's the level of consciousness we're looking at. Yeah, and I remember you mentioning that briefly in the in the last episode on Kaczynski as well. Right. So it makes sense that Kaczynski would start here as, again, I would argue, he's a modernist. This essentially means he has a hierarchical value system that rates certain methods for finding truth above others. To him, a mathematician by trade, reason is the harbinger of ultimate truth. Not feelings, not intuition or cultural appreciation or anything like that. This argument was around a lot in the 90s when postmodernism was on full display. There was a curious little book that was written in the mid-1990s called In Defense of Elitism by a guy named William A. Henry. And he made the same basic point, that the rampant postmodern drive to be all-inclusive was letting in ideas that were, in his opinion, kind of ridiculous. Hmm, Interesting. Have you read that too? No, I've never read that book, but I do remember it. Yeah. Yeah, as a topic of conversation. So, full disclosure, I never read In Defense of Elitism, but I know, I, I had an idea of what it was about. Huh, interesting. Um, so, I'll give you an example of what we're talking about here. Anybody remember, Dr. McCono, do you remember the whole fiasco in the 1990s about, quote, Ebonics? I, I do kind of vaguely. Yeah, I need you to talk a little bit more about it. It'll probably refresh my memory. Okay. So basically, this was an idea created by a teacher on how teachers could better reach students in the inner city. That's right. I remember. Okay. So this teacher knew that kids in the inner city tend to use almost a whole different language. So she thought, well, why not adapt and adopt some elements of this language in order to speak directly to them? Right. It's not a crazy idea, right? No, it kind of makes me think of like dialects, right? So you may learn another language and then when you go to visit a particular country, you may not be able to communicate very well because different regions, different areas may have different dialects. Exactly. I kind of view it similarly. Colloquialisms, different definitions of terms. Sure. You know. Sure. Yeah. So it's not a crazy idea, but then the press got a hold of this story and it became almost overnight a highly uh, sensationalized radical leftist idea to dumb down classic literature by using slang inner city kids would use in order for them to be able to identify with it. So much more was made of this idea than probably should have been with those like people like William Henry, the author of that book in defense of elitism, pointing at it as this sort of postmodern 
ideal gone awry. But really what it is is that the media had kind of twisted what the original intention was. Well, I think that I think that the media definitely helped in that regard, okay. you know. And yeah. so it, it, and suddenly this whole idea became like, you know, this ridiculous expression of postmodern thought. Like we're going to take classics of philosophy and literature and we're going to make them we're going to dumb them down by using these, you know, these slang and stuff mm-hmm. just so some kids might get interested in it, right? Whereas people from the right or people who were more modernist thinkers would say, no, we need to bring these kids up to the level of this literature, not dumb down the literature. Mm, Make okay. sense? Yeah, yeah, I get it. So my guess is that Kaczynski would have made the same argument. His whole point is that postmodern leftist types want the system to cater to them and hence are behind the continual push for the constant development of new technologies. In this case, literature would be made to cater to the children instead of challenging children to push their intellectual limitations by engaging the literature in its pure form. Hmm, okay. Okay. Uh, that's just one example that Kaczynski is sort of making. He doesn't refer to Ebonics, you know, by name or anything like that. That's just a sort of a, a parallel that I would draw. So so-called leftists, he thinks, uh, want society to solve all of humanity's problems for them and believe that technology will be the way to do this. And this is true to an extent. Leftist type thinkers do tend to blame systemic problems rather than individuals. So maybe not to the extreme that Kaczynski is arguing, but you get the point. Okay. Okay. So a leftist thinker would tend to probably look at root causes or systemic root, what they would argue are systemic root causes for social problems rather than point directly at the individual so kind of like the idea of like maybe institutionalized institutional racism or something kind of citing that as being this is why things are like the criminal justice system is messed up right so that's it's the old left right sort of argument you know leftists sort of want to um look at the system the big picture Right. They want to look at the system, the big picture, whereas um, conservatives, right th- right type thinkers want to look at the individual. Okay. That's a, that's a very, very, very generalized way of looking at it. But it still holds true in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Kaczynski is sort of making reference to this. So Kaczynski goes on about postmodern leftist thinkers for quite a while in his manifesto, even venturing to speculate on their psychological motivations being rooted in shame and a relentless drive for power. He states flat out that he believes leftists hate America and that they hate rationality. To me, this is very telling at his own motivations going back to the Murray experiments at Harvard, but most likely his time at the University of Montana as well. My guess is that Kaczynski was exposed to postmodern thinking a great deal while in academia, where he developed a thorough distaste for it. Imagine his disappointment where his mathematical genius went unrealized in favor for something like cultural studies or comparative world literature. Yeah, yeah. So, in other words, he found out very quickly that the old idea that reason, as expressed in mathematics, which was his field, was being held on equal ground with something like, you know... Art theory. <laughs> right, you right. Know. This must have really chapped his hide. You know, this is, of course, speculation on my part, but huh, my hunch is, is that Kaczynski became very disillusioned while in graduate school when he found that his modernistic powers of deduction were forced to share space with multiculturalism and feminism. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder. I wonder about that for sure. Yeah. 
So another way of looking at this by thinking of it might be by thinking of hierarchy. Kaczynski's reason dictates that certain things are superior to others or higher in the hierarchy. So postmodernists generally view hierarchies as being rooted in power and domination. So their goal, philosophically at least, is to knock these hierarchies down and sort of make everything equal. Okay, so still with me? I'm still with you, yeah. Okay, so this is where his argument starts. That these leftist types want everything handed to them, essentially, because of their psychology, which is rooted in shame. Because of this, they cheer the development of technology to this end. Kaczynski spends a lot of time making this point. Okay, and I will definitely say that he spends a lot more time uh, railing against leftist types than he does against right. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't leave conservatives out or rightist thinkers out completely. One point he does make, and that I would agree with, is the influence technology has had on culture and the right thinkers' inability to really acknowledge this. For instance, a number of episodes back, um, do you remember when we talked about the movie Mindwalk? Yeah, I do. Okay, which dives into the philosophy of science and paradigm shifts that have influenced our culture in art and politics, right? So the physicist character played by Liv Ullman in the movie makes the point that science and technology has reduced clocks to machines smaller than, you know, your fingernail. She then points at a very primitive mechanical clock the size of, a, of an entire room in the movie. Mm-hmm. and compares politicians to this very outdated technology. And she's right. Politicians, it seems, vastly underestimate just how much technology changes our culture. Kaczynski makes this point, but is much, much kinder towards people who think this way than he is to leftist thinkers. So he's kind of more aligned with that right, rightist mentality from his perspective, his understanding of what rightist mentality is. I would definitely I would definitely think he's much more prone to pointing the finger at individuals than he probably would be towards giant systemic problems, which is sort of funny because that's exactly what he's doing in his manifesto right. with technology. Right, and, and even through his actions, he was kind of like, targeting systems right exactly so that that's very interesting yeah okay so now we're getting to the crux of kaczynski's argument i'll try to break this down as simply as possible in the interest of time but basically it works like this he refers to quote socialization as the ability to of one to alter their personality and drives to fit within the dominant social system we as psychologists might call this being pro-social as opposed to being anti-social like criminals or those who live on the margins of society. So Kaczynski argues that leftists tend to be over-socialized, or in other words, they over-identify with the political slash technological system to the point that they lose sight of basic human drives. The most important drive people lose sight of, according to him, is something he calls the power process, and that's a quote, which is how we sort of claim personal power and autonomy over ourselves. Kaczynski sees this drive as a given and an absolute in human nature. We satisfy this power process, he argues, by working on very serious problems in our lives. In other words, we identify our lives through the struggle of achieving life and death goals. This would be like having to build a fire, like in a Jack London novel, or to build shelter in the western frontier of New America. These goals are essential to our survival, and as such... They are infused with purpose and meaning that we benefit from psychologically. 
So really the benefit is in that struggle for survival. Correct. Okay. And the achievement of these goals. Right. Okay, so Kaczynski argues that because we have had so many technological advances in the modern era that we have lost our ability to make meaning out of the goals we set for ourselves. This leaves us spiritually and psychologically destitute. So what we tend to do is focus our drive for power by adopting what he calls surrogate goals, and that's another quote, which are goals that he thinks are generally pointless to our existence, but useful psychologically to us because they give us a sense of setting goals and achieving them. In other words, we get a sense of meaning from them because we have to struggle to finish that degree or to win that sports tournament. Kaczynski believed that these are stand-ins for things that infuse us with true meaning, and they are poor substitutes at best. Here, I couldn't help but think of some Henry David Thoreau or Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, transcendentalist thinking in American literature in the 1800s, if you're familiar with those writings. So this is one of Kaczynski's main points. So I just was thinking about this. And so Kaczynski is saying, because we don't have to struggle for our survival, that the things that people strive for are basically meaningless. I mean, they ascribe meaning to them because that's what we do as human beings, but they're not like in and of themselves infused with meaning. Correct. And I just think that that's such a stark contrast to like Maslow's hierarchy, where he's saying that once, you know, we're going to have to strive and and secure our survival first, those are the basic goals, but that once those goals are met, that really frees us up to move up the pyramid towards self-actualization, which is also very infused with meaning. And he kind of points out that the ultimate goal in life is to become self-actualized. So really, they're having very, very conflicting views of this. I would agree with that. Yeah, Maslow would say, hey, this is great that we aren't having to focus on surviving day to day. And Kaczynski is saying that, no, this is terrible. This is not good for our psychological health because we aren't making meaning from from our, you know, ensuring our own survival. So Ken Wilber, you know, who's one of my favorite philosophers, would probably argue that in order to deal with the current problems we face, we have to evolve rather into a higher form of consciousness, right? But every form of consciousness comes with its own problems and with, with its own pathologies. So its own dark side. Its own dark side, yeah. exactly. So Kaczynski, however, is saying, no, in order to deal with the problems that we have now, we have to go backwards, essentially. Huh. Yeah. And that just doesn't, that doesn't fit with most of the other models, right? Correct. So his second point is that technology that we create to make our lives easier, in fact, makes our lives less free as all of our human behavior becomes subject to the new technological wonder, whatever that may be. An example of this is the invention of the car and how it completely changed how we organized ourselves, including how we lived in cities, moved goods around, and created local and national economies. These changes were profound. An even more profound example of this was Johannes Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. Gutenberg was named the single most influential person of the 20th century by a community of scholars back in 1999, for the, the dramatic changes the printing press brought about to our society and how information was disseminated. Right, that was huge. Yeah. So how does technology limit our freedoms? Well, Kaczynski has a lot of examples, things like databases that keep track of voluminous records about us, satellites that can spy on us, or any other way we can be watched, tracked, or controlled through the use of technology. 
And to an extent, this seems true. Nobody is beyond the reach of a Google search, it seems. Our most personal information, to include medical, financial, can be had, usually fairly easily, on the dark web. Genetic information is now being used to catalog us, etc. In this sense, technology, Kaczynski argues, seems to make us freer in our daily lives, so we see it as a good thing. But in reality, it is slowly being used by the elite, few, to exert control over us. Well, and and I think, again, it's like everything has light and dark to it. And so, you know, and we've talked about this kind of in our daily lives that technology, it does make life a whole lot easier. I mean, I think about all of the things that we can do now very quickly, our access to information. um, It's amazing. But of course, there's going to be a downside to it. And I think to, to assume that that wouldn't be the case would be pretty naive. Exactly. So, you know, what that reminded me of is the character that Matthew McConaughey played in the movie Contact. As the author, uh, with a religious sort of bent in this movie, which was about science and technology after all, and what science and technology can do, he asks a very simple question, which is, are we any happier with all these technological advances that we've had in the last century or two centuries or whatever? You know, and it's it bears or it merits some reflection, I think, to ask ourselves that question. So one of the examples that Kaczynski does touch on that I did want to sort of bring up is the field of biotechnology. In the 90s, um, biotechnology became a very hotbed topic of sorts because it was in the 90s that the mapping of the human genome became a real project. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I remember when, what was the sheep? Dolly Yeah, was the first like cloned animal. Right. And I remember that being very controversial. Yeah. So suddenly it seemed biotech and the possibilities of it were everywhere. Here again, Kaczynski makes some points in his manifesto about the use of technology as a way to control people. This point was also made by Gore Vidal, who guest starred uh, in a movie uh, about this topic. It was called Gattaca. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I loved that movie. Ethan yeah. Hawke was in that. Ethan Hawke, right. Uma Thurman, right. 1997. Yep. Uh, the whole premise was that biotech and our genetic makeup could be used against us to predetermine what we could or be, what we could do or be allowed to do in the course of our lives. Um, another author uh, named Jeremy Rifkin also made this point in a book called Algony, where he took a critical look at our advances in biotechnology And he also took aim at the idea of social Darwinism. So this debate was going on a lot in the 90s, and Kaczynski was definitely following along. I even remember a debate that I was a part of um, back in college, back when I was at Naropa in Boulder, where we discussed biotech as it applied to food. Kaczynski makes this point in his manifesto as well, that as the population continues to grow, we rely more and more on advanced technologies to feed all these people. Hence, the expanded use of genetic engineering to produce various foodstuffs. So where is the dark side of biotechnology? Well, everyone seems aware of how technology, even when it's well-intentioned, can be used against people. And biotechnology is a prime example of this. So there are three basic kinds of weapons of mass destruction. We have chemical, nuclear, and biological. Chemicals are cheap, but they usually don't kill a whole lot of people all at once. Nuclear weapons have an incredibly high kill ratio, but they are incredibly difficult to make, and they are usually too expensive for anyone other than governments to really acquire. 
which leaves us with biological weapons of mass destruction. Anthrax has been around for a while, but few people probably realize just how destructive a biological weapon like this can truly be. Biological weapons of mass destruction give us the best of both worlds, if you want to call it that. Or the worst of both or worlds. Or the worst of both right. worlds, right? They are usually cheap to produce, and they can have a very high kill ratio. This is the kind of control over populations that Kaczynski was warning us about. We are all familiar with the idea of a well-intentioned technology being conscripted for dark military purposes, and the advancements of biotechnology would certainly not be immune to this. There are a lot of people that agree with a lot of Kaczynski's viewpoints as far as the concerns about technology and the dark aspects of that. I think that he really viewed it as being all bad um, and didn't really, I don't, you know, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that he spent a lot of time talking about any of the positives of technology in his manifesto. Well, he talks a lot about how we perceive them as being positives, but when you look at the whole system and what has happened to the whole system over a long period of time, that the results of us and our sort of love affair with technology are overwhelmingly bad. Which is kind of interesting because, you know, now we're 20 years later, um, 25 years later, and yet here we all are still existing. True, but, you know, we could we could debate a lot about contemporary advancements in technology. We could talk a lot about, and I think the big one that we've been discussing or, you know, as a people a lot lately is that of social networking technologies. Sure. And what that's done to our privacy, to our ability, you know, cyberbullying is now this huge topic. We've had a number of young people hurt themselves, commit suicide based on social bullying that is being extended through the use of social networks. And I think that's definitely a dark aspect of it, but I think that there's also a lot of positives that go along with it. Sure. That it increases, you know, our ability to reach out to other people. I mean, think about um, some of the campaigns that you see on social media to raise awareness about mental illness and um, treatment for substance use disorders, suicide prevention. You know, so again, I think that it's we always have to be careful when we're breaking things down into dichotomies because I think that those are false. Okay. There's always going to be that black and white. I think there's always going to be, you know, not just black and white, but also all of that gray area, which is is really the majority that exists. And I think that's where Kaczynski gets lost. I think that he is definitely trying to draw a dichotomy, a very sharp dichotomy. So I think then the big question is, is that indicative of a mental illness? And that's what I really wanted to focus on in, in this episode. Um, because he was evaluated by different mental health professionals, several mental health professionals, both psychologists and psychiatrists during his criminal trial process. And, you know, I think any layperson would look at Kaczynski's actions, not necessarily his manifesto, but what he did after that as far as the bombings, and think there is something seriously wrong with this guy. You know, I've heard people describe his behavior as quote-unquote crazy, and I think that's often how we look at behavior that's hard for us to imagine engaging in. But in the legal sense and in the mental health sense, just because someone's behavior seems crazy doesn't mean the person was actually mentally ill. You know, in the case of the Unabomber, there were actually many people who felt Kaczynski's beliefs were 
quite rational, like we've talked about, and people that continue to this day to identify with some of his message. It was more about his approach to addressing these problems where people stopped identifying with him. And Kaczynski's own defense lawyers felt that he may have been mentally ill at the times he committed these offenses. They actually wanted him to pursue a mental health defense. So in our system, that would be, in the federal system, that would be an insanity defense. But as you talked about in the beginning narrative, Kaczynski really didn't want to do that because he thought that it would undermine his message and he didn't want people to view him as crazy. My understanding is that he was actually willing to go along with it if that was going to guarantee his immediate release from custody. And the way that the insanity defense works in our country, I think a lot of people are misinformed about it. If somebody is found not guilty by reason of insanity, they're not just released back into society. In the federal system, they are automatically civilly committed for being dangerous. And they can be committed in a mental health institution for an indeterminate amount of time. And what some of the research shows is that people who are found NGRI or not guilty by reason of insanity actually spend more time confined than they would have if they were convicted of a criminal offense. I think that's a huge, huge misconception of how the system works. Because you, we have criminals come in all the time, and, and you have criminals that you deal with all the time that think that if they just fool you into thinking that they're insane, that they're just going to get to go home. Right, and that's not what happens, and that's what Kaczynski learned. And so when he heard that, well, either way, I'm probably going to be confined for the rest of my life. Why would he want to to portray himself as mentally ill when he felt that his message was so important to get out there? So even though Kaczynski wouldn't plead insanity, there were concerns about whether or not he was competent to stand trial, as you talked about. And these two concepts are often confused in the media, so I just want to spend a quick moment explaining the difference. So as we talked about, when a person pleads insanity, they're saying that they did whatever act they were charged of doing, but that they were not responsible for their behavior at the time because they were so severely mentally ill that they either didn't know what they were doing or they didn't appreciate that what they were doing was wrong. So it has to do with their mental health at the time of the alleged crimes. Competency to stand trial, on the other hand, concerns a defendant's current functioning. So when someone's evaluated for competency, we're looking to see if they have any mental health problems currently that are interfering with their ability to understand the court proceedings or to help their lawyer with their defense. So Kaczynski had a few different mental health professionals evaluate his competency to stand trial. And some of them truly believed he had schizophrenia and that his beliefs, as outlined in his manifesto, were delusional in nature. However, other experts believed that while his beliefs may have been kind of outside the norm, they were not related to a mental health disorder. Rather, they believed Kaczynski had a personality disorder or a rigid way of viewing and interacting with the world. Um, But the distinction here is that it's volitional in nature. So people can make decisions about how they're responding to the world, what what their behavior is when they have a personality disorder. Versus somebody who has a major mental illness like schizophrenia, um, we would be thinking that they wouldn't be able to control their behavior, right? They're acting 
upon a false understanding of what reality is. And so we don't want to hold people accountable who are not in contact with reality and through something that's not their own doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. That volitional piece is probably the most important part, right? I mean, it's like, do does this person really understand what it is they're doing or have they completely separated themselves or have they completely been separated by a mental illness from reality? Are they psychotic? Right. And, you know, you brought up something earlier when you were talking about the manifesto. You said it really didn't strike you as being something that was written by a mentally ill person. Not at all. And one of the things that you kind of pointed to was the fact that it was so organized. It's very organized. It's very rational. It's very thought out. I mean, he he doesn't he doesn't take the time the way I think a, a true scholar would in terms of, again, tracing out the lines of you know thought and making the references to other ideas and people and stuff like that but he says it at the end the reason why he doesn't do that is because he tried to really condense his ideas you know he he didn't really have the time to do that he wanted he wanted to make his manifesto accessible well and and with regard to organization that's certainly something that we look at when we're evaluating people to see if they have a mental illness such such as schizophrenia some sort of psychotic illness but some people who do have a psychotic illness can be very organized in their thought process there's a disorder that doesn't happen doesn't occur very frequently in the general population called delusional disorder And individuals with this disorder seem perfectly normal in every other aspect of their life except for the areas that they have delusions about. And so, um, you know, those can be kind of tricky cases because you can talk to the person, have a very normal conversation, their behavior is normal, their emotional expression is normal, their speech is very organized. However, they may have these beliefs that are not based in in reality, and they're fixed and false, and and so they have these delusions. And so that's always kind of a tricky area um, when somebody's being evaluated for uh, a mental illness related to their criminal case. And in Kaczynski's case, you know, ultimately the court agreed that Kaczynski was competent to stand trial and that his beliefs were more related to his personality style than to any sort of psychotic mental illness. But, you know, from what I know about the case, from what I've read in some of the evaluation information that's been made public, I think this was probably a difficult case. You know, sometimes it can be really hard to tell where a strongly held belief ends and where a delusion begins. You know, I think that there are lots of people that have odd beliefs. In fact, I would argue that probably everybody has some belief that maybe is a little bit strange or on the fringe or not kind of in in accordance with what the general society thinks. That's fascinating. So an example would be like a superstition. So do you have any superstitions, David? I'm sure. <laughs> right. I mean, if you think about it, maybe it's not something that you think consciously about, but people do all kinds of odd things that are superstitious in nature. Right. And there's no proof that superstitious behaviors actually do anything. But like I said, most people have them. And conspiracy theories are another example. There again may be very little evidence to support a conspiracy theory, but lots of people still believe them. And we wouldn't call someone mentally ill for having these types of beliefs. Right. You know, but these are good examples of how our beliefs, they exist on this continuum. 
And sometimes it can be very difficult to determine where that line is between something that's maybe a conspiracy theory and something that's crossing over into a delusion. At the end of the day, when we're looking at the the legal system, these decisions are really up to the judge or jury to make. So with regard to competency, that's up to the judge to decide, is this person, do they have a mental illness that's interfering with their ability to understand court or help their attorney? And with not guilty by reason of insanity defenses, that often will go to a jury. And so they're ultimately the ones having to make these decisions. And like I said, some some cases are very easy, very cut and dry. It's very clear. But some cases are a little bit more complicated. And when we're getting into kind of those fringe beliefs, I think that that just complicates matters even more. Wow, that's interesting. You have a very interesting job, Dr. McConaugh. I, I love it. I have my dream job. How many people can say that? You know? <laughs> So what do I think is going on with Kaczynski's psychology here? Um, First, you know, I don't think Kaczynski is mentally ill in any way that contemporary psychology would classify mental illness, which we, you know, which I mentioned earlier. Um, As we know, people who are legitimately mentally ill, and you touched on this, um, they're much more likely to be victims of violence rather than perpetrators of violence. Absolutely. That is a risk factor for being victimized, um, is having a mental illness. Right. Um, this is what infuriates, I think, a lot of psychologists and therapists, you know, um, particularly with the hotbed topic of today, which is gun control, mm-hmm. because the gun lobby uses that term mental illness uh, a lot to describe, you know, mass shooters. And they're really misusing it. Well, I think it's another case of people saying, well, you have to be crazy to do that. Sure. And again, that's us saying, like, I don't understand it. I can't relate with it. But we have to be careful in in making the distinction between I don't understand something versus something being a product or related to a mental illness. Right. And again, we're getting back to this whole idea of making a conscious choice or volition. Right. And my understanding of a lot of the research on mass shooters is that most of them were not mentally ill in the sense that they would like qualify for a an insanity defense. Correct. But we'll get to that in another episode, I'm sure. Yes, we know some experts in that area, and so so we definitely will kind of circle back around to that. Correct, definitely. So in, in any case, I think um, something much simpler was at work here in Kaczynski's psychology. I think that he became very defended after his experiences at Harvard, and I think he became further disillusioned while at the University of Montana with the domination of the postmodern perspective that continues to run college campuses even today. Uh, He went out into the woods to escape what he saw as the darkness of where we were headed as a society. But, again, we have the age-old case of not being able to escape your own darkness. No, it follows us everywhere Everywhere we go, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So in my work with men, um, what never ceases to amaze me is the lengths that we will go to to deny the darkness in ourselves. In Kaczynski's case, I really think he was trying to run and hide from his own darkness by moving to the Montana forest. He then projected his own darkness onto this inflated enemy, namely technology, instead of doing the inner work of managing his own shadow dimension. I see a lot of this working with men. We are very good at projecting our anger, our fear, our sadness onto things, quote, out there. 
We make up enemies where there are none, all to avoid doing the inner work of owning and learning to manage our own shadow. Kaczynski, for all his intelligence, was taken down by something so incredibly simple, and that was his own darkness. He lost the moral high ground when he started killing people. His own darkness, which he tried so hard to escape, caught up with him, and he started mailing out bombs. You wonder how far he would have gone, or could have gone, if he had worked on himself and within the system. We might very well be reading any number of his books right now, and he might be a very respected scholar. Right. So a few episodes back, I brought up Shirley MacLaine and her book, Out on a Limb, and the reference to the New Age movement back in the 80s, which she was definitely a leader in and a part of. In the book, she wrote that her spiritual teacher said something to the effect of technology without an understanding of God is destructive, whereas technology with an understanding of God is unlimited. I would phrase that a little bit differently. I would say that as technology with an understanding of ourselves is unlimited. If we can deal with our psychological darkness instead of denying it and projecting it, technology would serve us rather than the other way around. It's only when technology advances past our own consciousness and our ability to use it that we will destroy ourselves. That means that right now we really have some work to do acknowledging our own collective and individual darkness. Yeah, I I think that those are really great points. And I think that we see people who don't manage their darkness every single day. And and I think that that's a task that we are all responsible for doing for ourselves. And, and I think that that can improve our relationship with technology when we do have that understanding of ourselves and we make it work for us to make us better. I agree. Definitely. So that wraps up our discussion on the Unabomber. And um, I think that, gosh, there's just so much interesting information. We could probably do more episodes on it, but we, we won't. Don't worry. We're going to be moving on to a new topic in a couple of weeks when we come back with a new episode. And we do have those resources and some additional information on Ted Kaczynski on our webpage at psychologyafterdark.com. You can find all of those links on our discussion page. And you can find us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please, please give us a five-star rating on whatever app you're using to listen to us. Please share it with your friends. And thank you guys so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskis, both provided by Gemendo.